listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 to 37. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating passage, and it, it helps to open up for us a deeper sense, a deeper meaning of the relationship with the Old and the New Testament. And it's the one that, uh, it's, it's the um, instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples about the law and the prophets. And um, when he speaks of the law and the prophets, of course, he's talking about what we refer to as the Old Testament. And uh, so he said, don't imagine that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to complete them. I tell you solemnly, till heaven and earth disappear, not one dot, one little stroke shall disappear from the law until its purpose is achieved. Therefore, the man who infringes even one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. But the man who keeps them and teaches them will be considered great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know, for instance, that in the life of the Holy Family, that there is a strict adherence to the law, that uh, Jesus is circumcised, and that uh, Jesus is presented in the temple 40 days after his birth, and, uh, and the Virgin Mary um, submits um, as, you know, even though she is the Immaculate Conception, she submits to the purification rites of the temple that take place after 40 days after the birth of a child. And so uh, we also know that the Holy Family goes to uh, Jerusalem for, for Passover, um, for the celebration of Passover. We know that for a, a number of ways, but especially in the very poignant story about uh, the child Jesus uh, leaving the crowd and going to the temple to debate with the doctors of the law. So um, we, we know, we see the Holy Family then, uh, Jesus as a child um, b submitting to the law of, uh, of, of Moses. And uh, so the example that he, that they give us, he, the Blessed Mother St. Joseph, give us, is that they respect the law. If anyone should have been exempt from the prescriptions of the law, it obviously, of course, was God himself and the Son um, and his immaculately conceived mother and her spouse, St. Joseph. However, they don't take that exception, and they submit to the same law that everyone else submits to. And they do it, and they do it in, in a way that fulfills the prescription, not in some kind of uh, indifferent sort of way. And that for us, of course, is a great example, too. It's an example of the respect that they show for the temple, the respect that they show, show for the law of Moses, and the respect that they show for their neighbor. For they could have said, you know, in, in the city of Nazareth, they could have said, well, you know, we don't have to do that after all. Um, and, uh, and kind of separated themselves from, from the whole people of Israel, but they did not do that. It was a sign of solidarity with the people of Israel, a sign of humility in relationship to the living God, and a sign of respect for all that had gone before them. But 
there are some issues here that we also have to address. One of them is, and uh, one of them is the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. This is something that we have to put into our minds, our hearts, in order to really kind of understand the contrasts that Matthew is going to continue with in, uh, in the rest of this gospel. And because what happens is, and we, we find the first understanding, the first proclamation of this, very honestly, um, in the story of the road to Emmaus where Jesus joins on the day of the resurrection, actually. The disciples are dejected and downhearted, and they're, they're, they're leaving Jerusalem um, with their failed mission, for the one whom they thought was going to be the Messiah has now been killed by, this and by the, the high priests and the, and the Romans. And, um, and so they think that the whole endeavor now is, is shattered. Jesus joins them on this walk. And then he said, then it says he begins to tell them everything in the scripture that referred to him. Well, the scripture that Jesus is talking about is, of course, the Old Testament. That's the only scripture there is. And so he's telling them in the Law and the Prophets, there is an underlying meaning, an underlying significance. And that underlying meaning and significance is, in fact, the revelation of the Son and preparatory for the fullness of the revelation of the Son. So that in order to fully, for the Christian, in order to fully understand the Old Testament, the Christian has to therefore understand it in terms of the fulfillment that comes in the Messiah and the Lord Jesus Christ, symbolized for us, of course, in the, in the visitation, when the last of the great prophets leaps with joy to encounter the Messiah um, in, in Mary's womb. And so the joyful handing over to the fulfillment of the prophecies and the law is symbolized for us in the visitation. It is explained, therefore, also in the story of the road to Emmaus. And it is within the tradition of the church, part of our mystical tradition, because in the fathers of the church, mysticism was not visions and elocutions and all of those kinds of things. In, in the mysticism of the fathers, it was the discovery underneath the sacraments and the scriptures and all of that of the presence of Jesus Christ and the fullness of his revelation to his people. So that when, in fact, oh, a few years ago, um, Pope Benedict XVI um, made that statement that for us to understand the Old Testament, we have to interpret it through through our understanding of Jesus Christ and our faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, immediately some German theologian with probably um, uh, uh, not enough to do um, decided that this was a radically anti-Semitic statement and, and took the opportunity as, as, the, as the formal German church has tended to do to condemn um, Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger. And, uh, but all the Benedict is doing is articulating what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus and respecting, therefore, also the mystical tradition of the fathers um, of, of the early church, which understood the scriptures exactly in this way. So Jesus then goes on. He said, but before I tell you, in, if your virtue goes no deeper than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying here is that the scribes and the Pharisees did obey the law and the prophets, but they did so as an act of external obedience. 
they did so as a matter of social format. They did it as a matter, it was a behavioral, ethical kind of, of, of observation of the law. Jesus says that the law runs deeper than that, that the law has to do with really the human heart and the human heart's relationship with the living God. So what Jesus is saying then is that you, it, while, while you, you do obey the prescriptions of the law, that the spirit of the law, and, and this gets sticky because certainly in the, in the cultural revolutions of the 19th century and even into the 21st century, or the 20th century and even into the 21st century, we get, you know, well, it's the spirit of the law that matters, which means I can do whatever I want. And, uh, and that's not what the spirit of the law is at all. And we're going to see how Jesus deals with that spirit of the law. But basically what it is, it's going back into the law and the prophets, going back into the Old Testament, and reinterpreting the Old Testament in the light of the presence of Jesus Christ in Revelation, exactly the mystical tradition of the fathers. And so um, moving away from the medieval idea of mysticism and even the contemporary idea in many ways of mysticism, we go back to the primitive understanding of it, which was the discovery of Jesus Christ under the appearance of scripture, law, practice, and so forth. That just the, 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 the paradigm of that is the belief in the Eucharist, the presence of the real presence of Jesus Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. Well, that's kind of what the Old Testament is for us too, the revelation of Jesus Christ under the appearance of the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus is doing now is lifting the veil, we might say, that existed um, and enshrouded basically the old law from the fulfill from its fulfillment, from its depth, from its most serious meaning in the relationship of the human person to the divine. And so Jesus says, now, you know, that your virtue has to go, in other words, it has to go below the surface. It has to go deep into the heart. And if you're going to understand what the Law and the Prophets is all about, if you're going to understand who I am in Revelation, then, then you have to move beyond simply the ethical, the practical, the moralistic. You have to get down to the mysterious presence of the Son of God embedded in the realities of our behavior, the realities of the Law and Prophets, the realities of the life of the church. So he says, <clears throat> you have learned how it was said to your ancestors, you must not kill. But if anyone does kill, he must answer for it before the court. But I say this to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will answer for it in the court. For if a man calls his brother a fool, he will answer for it before the Sanhedrin. And if a man calls him renegade, he will answer for it in the hellfire. So then if you are bringing your offering to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother first and then come back and present your offering. Come to terms with your opponent in good time while you are still on the way to the court with him or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. I tell you solemnly you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. All right, this is an example, this is a striking example of the very thing that, that we have been talking about, the very thing about the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ. And Jesus referring to the law and the prophets almost on a behavioral level, 
Um, it's not like, you know, that in the Old Testament there was not an idea that you love your God. That wasn't true at all. And so much of what we're saying in this was not absent in the Old Testament, but it was more implicit than, ex than explicit. Jesus is making explicit that which was implicit in the Old Testament. And so it's not a condemnation of the people of old. It's just the fulfillment, it's just the proclamation of the fulfillment of the implicitness, of the explicitness of that which was implied by the Old Testament. And so the command not to kill implied in that, of course, was that you don't murder people in your hearts because the heart um, is really the source of all sinfulness. When we harbor anger, resentment, jealousy, all those kinds of things, then we really in some way, shape, or form are committing violence against our neighbor. And it's interesting too, in relationship to anger, and he talks about anger here with, you know, with your brother. Um, if, if the anger that we hold inside of ourselves against others is kind of a self-inflicted punishment. Seldom does our anger disturb the life of the other, but it deeply disturbs our lives because it is a wound within our own soul and it is a wound within our own heart that we have there a lack of care, a lack of love, a lack of fulfillment of the great commandment, which basically underlies all of this, that you love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. If you cannot love one, you cannot love the other. And that absence, that anger, that distance, that resentment, all of those, that emptiness, um, is an affliction upon the human person. It's not so much, basically, you know, that we, you know, we can say, well, <clears throat> I hate this person, I hate that person, and certainly we find that very much today in the public arena, in the arena of politics and so forth. Um, but it punishes nobody except ourselves. And that's what's really interesting, because in the end, sin is a self-inflicted wound. It is something that wounds ourselves, that diminishes ourselves. It is never simply a private sin, because as diminished human beings, we fail in our obligation to give of ourselves to others simply because in our diminished state there is less of ourselves to give. So that every single sin becomes a corporate sin, becomes a sin against the church, against the community. That's why, that's why we ask for reconciliation with the church in order for our reconciliation with the Lord. Because through our diminishment of ourselves we have robbed the church of the gifts that the Lord has given us to use for the common good. So here we have then in this question of murder that Jesus is identifying the source of murder, which is the human heart. And, uh, and we find, for instance, even back in the Old Testament in the days of Cain and Abel, it was um, Cain's jealousy of Abel. It was not just only an external act where he killed his brother. It began in his heart. It began with the, with the, with the capital sin of jealousy, of envy. And, uh, and in so doing, so his heart, itself, you know, his heart itself was diminished. There was less of him to make the moral decision because of the hatred that he had in his heart for his brother. So here then in this idea of the hatred of the brother. And then, and then Jesus says, you know, if you come to the altar in this diminished state, 
then you are less capable of receiving the person of Jesus Christ within yourself to the fullness of its advantage and to the fullness of its influence uh, in, in your life. And so basically then, what, what you find is that Jesus is taking the, the, the implicit terminology of the law of the Old Testament and he's making it explicit in, in relationship to the New Testament, in relationship to the fulfillment of the Old Testament, in relationship to the New Covenant. And that demands that it go below the surface, below the, the behavioral level, and has a tremendous impact on the human heart. Um, and changes us inside in such a way that it changes us also then consequentially outside. Then Jesus goes on to another con contradiction, and he says, you have learned how it was said you must not com commit adultery. But I say this to you, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, and we know that if if our human heart is consumed with with lustfulness toward another person, basically, if you're a married man or a married woman, and you you maybe maybe you're not unfaithful uh, on the surface, maybe you're not behaviorally unfaithful uh, with another person, but you can be be very unfaithful in the use of pornography and you can be very unfaithful in your attitude toward others outside of yourself. Uh, a woman lusting after a man who is not her husband, a husband lusting after a woman who is not his wife, all of these are subtle and, and, and in, in implicit forms of, of adultery. And so Jesus is saying once again, it isn't just the sexual act that he says is condemned by thou shalt not commit adultery, but it is the seat of that act. It is the origin, the source of that act, which is deep within the human heart. And so we cannot say, you know, we live a pure and holy life if we go around watching pornography all day long or, or if we sit around lusting after someone um, other than our husbands, our wives, um, or, or whoever. And then he says... Um, then he says, but I say this to you, if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with this in his heart. Then he says, if your right eye should cause you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it will do less harm to lose one part of you than to have your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand should cause you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it will do you less harm to lose one part of you than to have your whole body go to hell. And here again, we, we enter into this idea of Semitic hyperbola. Jesus is not saying this. Um, he's, he's, and once again, to, to talk about hyperbola, I guess, that there is no comparative within the Hebrew language. You can't say good, better, best. You say, you know, one, two, three instead. In other words, you exaggerate, you, you uh, multiply. And the greater the number, the greater the comparative relationship with the original. And so Jesus now exaggerates. He doesn't mean that you should tear out your eye, and he doesn't mean you should cut off your hand, and he doesn't mean you should mutilate yourself in any other way. Apparently, apparently, this is what got Origen, one of the great fathers of the church, into trouble because he tried to follow this literally and mutilated himself and... and uh, and that was not actually the spirit of the law. That was the external conformity according to a, a hyperbolic 
Hebrew statement that Jesus has here about cast, put, putting out your eye and, uh, and, and cutting off your hand. And uh, what, he simply, what it really means is, <clears throat> once again, what is interior to you, what is interior to you is something that, uh, that affects what you do outside. If you, and this is where we get the, the whole, you know, the whole traditional idea of the custody of the eyes, that, you know, if you are prone to lust, then, then you shouldn't stare. Um, and, and you shouldn't concentrate on the, on the looks of the other person or the physical attractiveness of the other person. There's nothing wrong with looking at another person with the kind of the awesomeness of the beauty of the human person. But when, when you look at it lustfully, when you look at it in a way that is unfaithful, uh, when you do that, then it's very, very uh, important that uh, that you turn away from that, that you somehow or other discipline and remove all that. And so whatever, whatever it is, um, then you change the interior disposition, for in that is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and that's the law that will not pass away, is the law for the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Then he says, it has also been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a writ of dismissal. But I say this to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the case of fornication, makes her an adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And this is, of course, in this day and age, a very, very difficult saying in the Old Testament. This is the one, unfortunately, when one of the leading German theologians, who was also a prelate within the church, said that, you know, it's too harsh for us and uh, that Jesus is too harsh. Um, well, but you know, that's evaluating this exactly as the Old Testament understood the law in a behavioral, ethical sort of way. What Jesus is saying is this, that, you know, you make a commitment from the depth of your heart to another person, and your obligation is to, in, is to retain that depth of commitment, that it isn't just, you know, well, gee, I'm, I'm tired of you. I, I remember many, many years ago, someone coming to me and say they were going to divorce their wife, and I said, well, I said, well, I'm not in love with her anymore. I don't even know what that means. I, I, in one way, I do understand what that means. In another way, love isn't like that. Love just doesn't go away. If it's, if it's generous and if it's deep in the heart, it just does not abandon the self. Not saying that there are not serious consequences, there are not serious issues that surface in the course of a marriage, and most of them rooted in an in, in imprudent judgment at the very beginning of the marriage. But nevertheless, this idea of a casual divorce, for in the Old Testament, if a man was tired of his wife, he could simply give her a, a, a writ of divorce. Now certainly this was, you know, patriarchal exploitation of the woman. On the other hand, giving her the writ of divorce protected her from the accusations of adultery if she marries another. So it was a very uh, subtle form of uh, a protection of women's rights, um, not something that we would consider very generous today at all, but it was at least, uh, at least a small opening of the door toward that. But Jesus is saying this very clearly. Inside of yourself, if you love, 
If you truly love, then true love is something that no matter what the vagaries of our human experience may be, is able to perjure even through the most difficult of times. And so he says marriage is not just a contractual surface relationship. It is a blending of the human hearts, a blending of the human hearts in such a way that it creates a whole new entity, a whole new thing of a couple. And in blending, of course, a whole new reality of the love of a man and a woman for each other brings forth creatively new life into the world. It is a generative force and a renewing force within humanity itself. And so to take it lightly, to take it simply as an ethical prescript um, is, is wrong. And, uh, and this, of course, again, draws down deep into the interior life deep into the interior life, the, um, the reality of, uh, of the institution of marriage. And so he says, but I say to you this, do not, s and then he goes on to the oaths. You've learned how it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but must fulfill your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, since that is God's throne, or by earth, since that is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, since that is the city of the great king. And then he goes on. And what does this mean? Does this mean in a radical way that we are never to, to uh, take an oath? No. It means that an oath is not in any way, shape, or form simply a surface reality, a behavioral thing, an ethical reality. It is an absolute internal commitment in which you call upon God himself to be part of this testimony that you make, this answer that you give, and that you are therefore perjuring yourself, you are therefore sinning against the Lord if you, if you break an oath. It's not just something, it's something that has to stem from deep inside of yourself. And stemming from deep inside of yourself, then what it means is that you have drawn God, who is present in us, who dwells within us, into, into lying and deception and deceit. And that in itself is a serious, serious grievance against the Lord. For we are the bearers of his authenticity in the world. And we are the ones who testify to who he is and to all of the characters and the attributes of the living God. We may not take that and trivialize it in a surface ethical sort of way. It is therefore an opening up and a commitment of the human heart. So we see all of this then, and the underlying reality, of course, reflect upon it, is the great commandment. All of this is love God and love your neighbor. And then he's telling us, and the way that you learn to do that is you take the implicit revelation of the Old Testament in his day and age and that you draw it out into the depths of the reality. It's no longer surface, it's no longer behavioral, it's no longer moralistic, it's no longer ethical. It is now a matter of an in-depth relationship between God and humanity and in humanity's solidarity with one another. It is the sharing of the presence of the divine from our hearts through their hearts. And it is a building up of the body of Christ and it is a living witness to the world of the presence of God among us and his power within our lives and the lives of all peoples. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. <laughs>